Hello and welcome to The Word, our new occasional series which shines a spotlight on well-known guests in a way you've never heard them before. I'm Louisa Fox and in each edition I'll be exploring facets of my guests' inner lives through an unusual medium, their favourite passages of the Bible. I'll be asking why they've chosen them and what each one says about them. We'll hear those Bible favourites read by the man who is Poirot in another life, actor David Suchet. We're part of things unseen for people who think there's more to life than the material world. When I mention the name Nicky Gumbel, you might conjure images in your mind of one of the most successful evangelical churches in Britain, which is Holy Trinity Brompton regularly seeing a Sunday congregation of 4,000 people. Or you may think of the hugely popular Alpha Course, which introduces people to the basics of Christian faith. Nicky's students have included the current Archbishop of Canterbury and Jerry Halliwell. You probably wouldn't expect today's guest to have ever described church as boring or God as, and I quote here, intellectually unsustainable, untrue and irrelevant. Now, Nikki, before you became a Christian, were you an atheist or did you simply think God was irrelevant to your life? I was an atheist as a teenager and I certainly thought as well that God was irrelevant to my life. Yet my background was my father was Jewish and secular Jew. He would have described himself as an agnostic, but he was sort of verging on atheism, really. And my mother was not a church girl. So I had no kind of Christian upbringing. But then I think when I was at school and started to do RE lessons and things and started to think about God, I came to my own conclusion that God did not exist. And I became quite an argumentative atheist. So after a strongly sceptical start, how did you become a Christian? In my first year at university, I was sharing rooms with a great friend of mine called Nikki Lee, and I had warned Nikki not to have any contact with Christians who I regarded with great suspicion. I'd met a few of them and seen their smiles and thought they were slightly weird, so I warned him to stay away from them. But unbeknown to me, he had started investigating faith, and he came back one evening, he and his then-girlfriend, now his wife, Scylla, and they told me they had become Christians and I was devastated because they were such nice people and I thought I've got to help them. So that night I thought I got to investigate the only thing I could find was an old Bible I'd had for RE at school and I started reading it and I read all the way through Matthew, all the way through Mark, all the way through Luke. I got about halfway through John's Gospel when I fell asleep. The following day I carried on reading. Whole of the next day, whole of the next day I was a student so I didn't have any work to do. I just carried on reading the whole of the New Testament and I came to the conclusion it's true. So what, what changed between your kind of teen reading of the Bible in those RE lessons and that moment of it's true? I think when I read it for RE lessons, I don't really remember anything about it except the whole religion seemed to me to be so boring. You know, we had chapel at school. I, I mean, I never listened. It was a moment to switch off and think about other things. And I think that... Everything about church, I just found it so dull. I don't know why. Just, it made me feel uncomfortable, slightly guilty for some reason. And it's just the last place in the world I wanted to be. But I think reading the New Testament that night, I encountered Jesus. I read it in a different way. And the words of Jesus came to life and seemed so relevant to my life and so challenging. And there was a ring of truth about it, to use J.B. Phillips' expression. Let's hear your first verse, which is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. 
After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. What do you think when you hear this passage? Well, to me, the resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity because we're all going to die. And the question is, is that the end? And if it is the end, that's very final and it puts a totally different complexion on this life. But the resurrection of Jesus changed everything because he defeated death. And that's what broke through my atheism because the resurrection suggests that this world has a creator and that that creator is to be seen in terms of through the lens of Jesus. So the resurrection to me is an absolutely crucial aspect. And I was a lawyer. I practiced as a barrister for a number of years. I came from a family of barristers. And to me, evidence matters. And I think what I was struck by reading the New Testament is in the different accounts, and we've just had one of them read, that the evidence for the resurrection, that the tomb was empty, that Jesus appeared to his disciples. He was seen by them. These guys then gave their life for what they encountered. When they were being tortured, when they were being crucified, all they had to say was, no, it's not true. And that would have been the end of it. But they knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They knew that Jesus really was the Son of God and that that changed everything. It changed the way we look at life. It gives a whole new meaning and perspective to life and to eternity. So the resurrection is absolutely at the heart of Christianity. And it's the truth of that that really matters. You mentioned just now being a, a lawyer, a barrister. You were pretty successful, as I understand, but after about six years, you, you stopped that and you decided to become an ordained vicar. How difficult was that decision for you? I love my job. I mean, I, I'm not sure how successful I was, but I love being a barrister. If I was going to do anything other than what I'm doing at the moment, I would like to be a barrister. Uh, I came from a family of barristers. My father was a barrister. My mother was a barrister. My sister is a barrister. My son's qualified as a barrister. My daughter's qualified as a barrister. Both my grandfathers on both sides were barristers. My uncle was a barrister. If we'd had a cat, it would have been a barrister. <laughs> Everyone's a barrister. So that's my background, and I love law, and I was really enjoying my job. But I was passionate about this experience, this encounter I'd had about Jesus. I knew the difference between how I was as an atheist and what it was like to be a Christian, to know Jesus Christ. And I wanted as many people as possible to have the opportunity to have that experience that I'd had. 
So I was passionate to communicate. So it was a kind of evangelical urge in there right from the start? It was just a desire to communicate. I wasn't very good at communication, actually, because I'm quite shy and introverted. And one of the things I think the bar helped me to do was to overcome my fear of speaking. But it was a desire to communicate that faith to people outside of the church, like I was, that I think was at the heart of why I wanted to do the job that I'm doing at the moment. I suppose it was a move from one kind of advocacy to another, not so... Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed being an advocate in court. I started off doing crime, and I really enjoyed it. But sometimes I would just feel, when I was prosecuting someone and supposing they were convicted and went to prison, or I defended someone, and, of course, sometimes they were convicted and went to prison, but sometimes they were acquitted. But I would always think, is that really it for that person? And what I've loved about what I've been involved in now is Alpha is running in 85% of the prisons in the UK and in 80 countries around the world. Now I go into the prisons and I meet the same type of person. Occasionally I've met people who are actually defended but, um, <laughs> but, um, or prosecuted worse. But, um, but it's the same type of person. And now there's a different message that is able to bring them hope, not just of being let out of prison, of course, which is one level of hope, but hope for the whole future of their life and to see their lives change. And we run a program, Caring for Ex-Offenders, where we meet them at the prison gates if they want that and help to find them a job, help to find a place to live and integrate them into the church. And we do it in our own church and we do it in churches all over the country. But in our own church, we have 50 ex-offenders and many of them have become very good friends. And to see their lives radically changed. And the earliest one was 1994, so it's nearly 20 years on to see those people now living a totally different type of life that has been hugely influential for good is amazing joy and nothing really compares to that. There is clearly a lot of joy and, and hope in faith and in your faith but the next verse you've chosen which is from the Gospel of Luke is a passage where Jesus talks about Christians being required to carry their cross which is a wholly different aspect. Why is this passage important to you? Why does that concept matter to you? Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. And knowing Jesus, following Jesus, is the life of life in abundance. It's full life. But it's not necessarily an easy life. Jesus didn't come to make life easy. He came to make people great. And it's often in the difficulties and the challenges of life that we grow most. And following Jesus is never going to be easy. And I think he made that clear to all his disciples. It wasn't the easy option, but it was the most fulfilling, the most joyful way to live your life. But it, it's not necessarily easy. Here's Luke 9, verses 18 to 27. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me.
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Your mother was a non-practicing Anglican. Your father was German-Jewish but didn't practice Judaism. When you were growing up, how much did your father talk to you about the Holocaust? I believe he lost several family members. He didn't talk to me at all. He never referred to it once. My mother referred to it once. When I was 14, my mother took us for a walk. I can remember it distinctly as if it was yesterday. Uh, I, I remember exactly where we were. We were walking along the promenade in Hove, near Brighton, and she said to us, your father is German and Jewish, and you're never to speak to him about it. And we never did. Have you tried to explore your German-Jewish roots in adulthood? Yeah, well, I knew that my father would not speak about it. And if you got it anywhere near it, he would start talking about the weather. Uh, <laughs> this was his way of it's saying... Safe. <laughs> his way of saying, I'm not talking about it. I'm not talking about anything. So you couldn't ask where he went to school, where he went to university. You couldn't ask anything about his life, really. And at the time, I couldn't really understand why. Now I do understand because even the little bits of trauma that I've experienced in my life, I know how painful it is to talk about. And when you realise the trauma that he must have experienced, and I think of it like supposing the whole Christian population in the UK were put in concentration camps, and I had lost all my family and all my friends, not just dying, but dying the most horrific death, how would you ever begin to to process. Now, I know some people did, but I can understand how he was not able to process. Yes, I, I'm fascinated to find out more about my family. I couldn't talk to him. Even my mother wouldn't talk about it after he died. But after both of them had died, his sister was still alive. So I asked her to tell me everything that she knew, and I wrote down everything she knew about him and about his life beforehand and she gave me a picture album of some of him beforehand and some of his old girlfriends and all that sort of thing so I, I began to discover a little bit more and then about 18 months ago the Judaica Museum in Berlin rang me to say they were investigating my family because one of them was a well-known silversmith and they're doing an exhibition about him in Israel so they asked me what I knew and I said I know very little what do you know? And so they said, oh, well, I'll send you what we know. So they sent me a document that told me more about my family than anything I'd ever discovered before. And I discovered about my great-grandfather was called Abraham. And my grandfather was Moses. All these different things that I discovered about my family. And then they also sent the family tree, which showed the different concentration camps that each of the cousins had died in. And that was what made me realise just why he couldn't talk about it. It was too horrific, but it was fascinating to see. I even discovered one of the Gumbels, um, whose book I have over there, Emil Gumbel. One of his closest friends was Einstein. You know, it's sort of, you know, this amazing <laughs> sort of, um, you know, if only my father had been able to talk about it, there must have been such fascinating things to say. I mean, thinking about that 
family tree, which is a terribly sad variant of a family tree, isn't it, with the final places of dispatch for each of them, the concentration camps. How can you reconcile horrors like the Holocaust with the hope which is expected, demanded of your faith? I think the issue of innocent suffering is the hardest question to answer. It's the biggest moral objection to the Christian faith. And no one has really ever come up with a satisfactory answer to the question of suffering. People say, well, it's free will. That may explain some suffering. People say, well, you, you benefit from suffering. That's true in my own life. I know I've probably learned more through the difficult times that I've been through than the easy times. People say, well, you have to see it in the context of eternity. God has all eternity to put right these things. But none of those answers are totally satisfactory. And ultimately, I think, for me, the reason that Christianity is so powerful is that Jesus is not aloof from suffering. God is not aloof from suffering. He came and was part of our world, and he died in the most horrific way so that he understands suffering. He's not just watching in a kind of aloof way, uh, but he came and he suffered for us, and he now suffers with us. And so suffering is at the heart of the Christian faith. And I think it's the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that gives us the most profound understanding of suffering. Let's hear your final excerpt, which is from the Old Testament, and it's Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, The Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What does this psalm mean for you? Well, fear is something that all of us have to deal with in our lives. And what the New Testament tells us is there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And fear entered the world when Adam sinned. Up to then, there was no fear. But when Adam sinned, he hid from God. 
and God came looking for him and he said, well, I hid because I was afraid. And fear comes in as a result of sin and condemnation and the sense of judgment. And when we understand that Jesus died for us, he's taken away our condemnation, he's taken our sin, then we have no need to fear. And then God gives us an experience of his love being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that means that we know he loves us. Thank you, Nikki Gumbel. You've been listening to Things Unseen, the platform for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.